Then beginning in chapter 17 is what we might refer to as a more granular focus. Think of going to an optometrist and you finally get to the lens portion of the exam. That's the only reason you really came. (laughs) Uh, And you're sitting there waiting for the optometrist to put your little head against that little big thing that's got all the little focus lenses in it. And uh, he makes you or she makes you look through that giant uh, contraption and, of course, asks you the question, better, worse, better, worse, better, worse. I always go, hmm, not sure, better, worse, hmm, not sure, and they get really irritated. But anyway, anyway, until you finally get the best corrective lens possible, given the limits of our technology. So you think of chapter 17 through chapter 19, verse 10, as a sharper lens to look at what was just described in chapters 15 and 16. This is a common method employed by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John to communicate the message of this particular book. What we'll find in chapter 19 in verses 11 to 21, uh, is the same experience, only focusing on the last battle, the last battle itself, which is alluded to here in chapter 17. So how is Jesus' purpose in this portion of the visions accomplished? How is His purpose accomplished? How does He bring home to your heart and to my heart what is really happening in history itself, in human history itself? Uh, Well, He does it by personifying Babylon, by personifying Babylon. Because as you know from what we've learned so far, that Babylon is really representative of a world system. A world system, uh, and not the United Nations, a world system that governs your life and my life, uh, and it governs in particular with a more profound effect what are referred to as earth dwellers. They are the folks who find their meaning, purpose, values, and goals all in what the world provides for them, this system of the world. And this is pictured for us in the form of a prostitute, a whore. This is the world system referred to as Babylon. I know we don't like to talk about things that way. You know, it became very unfashionable to talk about a drunk He's an alcoholic. Okay, well, I got news for you. My stepfather was a drunk. Okay, not an alcoholic, a drunk. And the Bible uses very clear words to talk about reality. Whereas we in our culture seem to be addicted to euphemisms. You know, he has a drinking problem. No, he's a drunk. That's how the Bible describes it. And so we have this problem, which we'll see further as we go along. So let's break the text down this way. First of all, the harlot is described, the harlot's influence is interpreted, and the harlot is defeated in a most unexpected way. So first, the harlot is described. So John first sees a picture in broad outline of the harlot, Babylon, and her seductions, if you will. And one of the lessons, you know, taught by every conscientious parent to their children goes something like this. Honey, appearances can be deceiving. Remember that. 
Don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, People aren't always what they seem. Every parent has said that to their children at one point or the other. You know, the mirror can sometimes uh, tell us what we want to believe, can it? I get in looking at that mirror every morning. I go, I I really look okay, don't I? I really do. Yeah, you look great, Michael. You know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Well, as we know from the story, the arrogant and insecure queen sees herself as beautiful. After all, the truthful mirror confirms her beauty every day, and yet we discover in the story that she's anything but beautiful. She's anything but beautiful. People are not always what they seem to be. Although we know that is true intellectually, I hope, we uh, may uh, still be easy prey for the flashy image, the manipulative hype, the convincing come on that had its origins in the Garden of Eden when the serpent persuaded the woman that uh, it, not God, had her best interests in mind and at heart. So the vision that opens before John's eyes here first paints the harlot Babylon's superficial attractiveness. What is it about Babylon, the system of the world, that is so attractive, which explains how she can be so alluring not only to non-Christians, but also alluring to the church, to Christians as well. And then John will see the ugliness underneath the cosmetics and all the accessories. And finally, he will see Babylon's shameful decomposition at the hands of her lovers, her paramours. So through this uh, dramatic, detailed unpacking of the brief description of Babylon's fall in the seventh bowl, that Jesus is challenging you and He's challenging me to look past the appearance and to perceive the horrendous spiritual reality that lurks beneath the surface that is at the very rotten core of all impressive cultures and civilizations, no matter how impressive they might appear to be. So that you and, for example, you and I live in a 21st century culture which is confident of its affluence, confident that its technology can answer all the most important questions that you or I could ever pose. You see, the dragon's strategy, one among many that is, is to do what? The dragon's strategy is to soften the truth, to soften the truth of things, and in the end, tell us and sell us a lie. This is one of Satan's strategies. How does Satan accomplish this? How does he accomplish this? Well, for example, we no longer use the word whore for prostitute. That's not a common. When's the last time you heard someone use the word whore? Well, you probably haven't unless you watch HBO uh, or one of the other cable channels. Uh, We are a people accustomed to more sensitive euphemisms, aren't we? Adultery. 
is now an affair. Don't you love that one? Adultery is an affair. An affair of the heart, no doubt. An idolater? When's the last time anyone referred to anyone as an idolater? Heaven forbid. No, they're just people with misplaced priorities. That's a better way of putting it. People with misplaced priorities. Covetous? That's a word you never hear. Covetous? That's just someone who's looking out for number one. What could be wrong with that? Homosexuals are all gay. They're all gay. Thanks to Oscar Wilde and his progeny, the homosexual is now a gay person. Prostitutes are always victims. They're never perpetrators. Now, that's not to say that some women in the third world especially are not victimized. They are victimized. But we now gloss over the whole industry as one of simple victims, not perpetrators. You see where this is all going. You see, we need the truth, warts and all. That's what the Bible keeps telling us. You need the truth, warts and all. Jesus answers, his answer is, of course, the vision of Babylon, the harlot Babylon, her beauty and her eventual destruction and demise. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And the identifying expression used here for the whore of Babylon is the expression, the great prostitute. The great prostitute. Now that is a very common expression in the Bible and particularly in the Old Testament, to describe what? The immorality and the idolatry of God's people, Israel. In Jeremiah, for example, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers, Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. He's talking about the people of God. You're not talking about Las Vegas. You're talking about the people of God. They don't even blush. They're so engaged in this prostitute experience. If you read the book of Hosea, if you ever got around to it, you'd be shocked at what you read. Prostitution is used more than any other book in the Bible in Hosea. His very wife, Gomer. Just one after the other, after the other, after the other. It's quite devastating. Here, it's in reference to sinful humanity who plays the harlot and that it not only commits licentious behavior, but also does what? It leads other people into doing it as well. Look what it says in verse 5. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. 
Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. You see, as an instrument and an expression of the dragon, she bears offspring who likewise bear her image. And that's the world system that is so exalted in the eyes of earth dwellers. She's said to be, quote, intoxicating, inducing drunkenness in her followers. That's an allusion to Jeremiah chapter 51, which there pictures Babylon as making the whole earth drunk, resulting in God making them really drunk with the wrath of my wine. Babylon was a gold cup. She made the whole earth drunk. Nations drank her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. The book of Proverbs describes the seemingly irresistible power of this prostitute Babylon this way. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Proverbs chapter 9 amplifies the truth of what's happening. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Wow, that's not the picture of the world system we're used to seeing, is it? Because it's such a satisfying system. It pleases me so much. Everything is at my fingertips. What a wonderful, beautiful thing it really is, isn't it? That's not the picture we're given here. Beyond the surface, beyond the cosmetics, beyond the coif or coiffured hair, the makeup and everything else, there's something deadly lurking beneath the surface of it. Now, Proverbs is a book dedicated to the proposition that without wisdom and discernment, we always choose the wrong path, which in the end leads to destruction. So the world and the worldly networks crafted by the great prostitute are seemingly innocuous. They appear even to be innocent, at least at first. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Notice the description. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, and she was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand. Now, upon closer examination, however, John sees what is actually in the cup, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. 
So what at first appears somewhat entrancing, namely a cup glittering with gold, precious stones, is found upon closer examination to be filled with the truly sordid compromises of the world. Compromises with the world system itself. And also with the victims of the world system's treachery. The blood of God's holy people. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So secondly, what is the influence of the harlot? The influence of the harlot is comprehensive. It's worldwide. She who sits by many waters with her kings of the earth committed adultery. And the angel then interprets that further. He says, the waters you saw where she sits, where the prostitute sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So you see the comprehensiveness of all of this. And lest there be any doubt, he concludes, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Well, the question is, of course, why so much influence? Why so much influence? In fact, John, we're told here, is even astonished at what he sees. He says, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished at her beauty, at her alluring qualities, the things that made me want to think, yes, that's really the answer. That's the answer. And that word astonished is an interesting word that combines amazement and confusion. So John is amazed by what he sees, but he's confused by it. He's troubled by it, in other words. John was expecting, no doubt, to see her awfulness at first, right? He's, I'm going to see all the bad stuff here at first. And then he would see her judgment. But what is he given? He's not given a picture initially of all the bad stuff. He's given a picture of her attractiveness, her alluring qualities, the luxury and the seeming power that the system of the world offers to us. She is dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. And the dyes referred to here were dyes that only the wealthiest could ever possess. Kings would have these colored garments, not your everyday plumber or carpenter. The woman offers her disgusting cocktail to the kings and the residents of the world while she is all the, all the time getting drunk with the blood of the saints, the witnesses for Christ. Her seductive affluence and the beast's coercive violence are a symbiotic relationship. You see, the nations bow down to Babylon, the world system, not simply because it has armies to suppress any sort of insurrection, which it does. The, the system creates a police force, so to speak. Not men and women wearing badges and caps and pistols, but there's a police force at work in the world system that punishes people who don't go along to get along. But also because of the far-flung efficiency of the administration of the world system. How can you fight it? It's on the internet. And that creates what? Economic prosperity, stability. Everybody knows what button to click. 
I want free two-day shipping. I'll pay $9.99 to get it today. If you live in some big cities, not Greenwood, you can get it within an hour. So the threat of force, the allure of affluence, work perfectly together with each other. So, of course, Babylon celebrates the slaughter of Jesus' witnesses, His people, because His people, it is assumed, do not buy into it. They don't buy into it. They don't coordinate their lives around it. They question and challenge everything. Do I question and challenge every purchase I make? I ought to. I ought to. You see, the world doesn't. In fact, they'll spend money they don't even have. But we, on the other hand, aren't those who simply don't spend money. We're people who ask, why am I spending or not spending my money on this or whatever? You see, Christians will not... According to the book of Revelation and the Bible itself, Christians will not submit their thoughts and activities to the beast's sovereignty. Therefore, the harlot delights in their martyrdom. And that martyrdom doesn't have to have, being, have your head cut off. It can be losing your job. It can be losing your standing in society. It can be all sorts of things that punish you according to the world's system and standard. You see, John would never be attracted by this woman who is drunk with the saint's blood. He wasn't shown that initially. It was her stylish wardrobe he saw first. So his wonder is really a, a blend of confusion and fear. What ominous enemy does this woman represent? And how can the church of Christ endure the assault that comes from it when all the world, everyone around us, is in love with it? They are in love with it. And when the beast on which she rides seems all-powerful, it's all-powerful. Who are we? Well, according to the Scottish psychiatrist R.D. Lang in the 20th century, he's gone now, he had an interesting belief. He believed that various forms of psychoses, especially schizophrenia, often don't indicate illness, but rather an acute insight into the way the world really is. He believed that economic and social pressures are exerted on people in order to make them sleep. That is, to become unconscious of the evils of the world. You see, sleeping people, according to Lang, in this world, are normal people. In his work, normal is the condition of alienation, of being asleep, 
of being unconscious, of being out of one's mind. It's the condition, Lang said, of normal man. You see, society, according to Lang, highly values normal men and women. It educates its children to lose themselves, as he puts it, and thus to be normal. Normal men, as he notes, have killed perhaps 100 million of their fellow normal men. You see, for lying, the psychotic person is the person who can't be put to sleep. Who remains on the same level, aware of the inconsistencies and cruelties, both outside themselves and inside themselves. You see, Lang says, the schizophrenic hears voices. And those voices often tell the truth. You see... We are part of a world which is defined normal. And that normal is really sleepwalking. The Christian, on the other hand, is now becoming the schizophrenic. The one who challenges the normal. And you see, the world system has no tolerance for people who challenge the normal. We condition each other to be normal, to fit in, to be a part of the team, the purchasing, consuming team. Get on board with the program. For a fascinating cinematographic look at that, a film was made of Lang last year called Mad to be Normal. You should look it up, watch it on Netflix maybe. So John is confused. So the angel will interpret her downfall. And he already alluded to this in verse 1. Come and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. The great prostitute. And then he goes on in verse 8. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast and, she, and what she rides on. The woman adorned in scarlet rides a beast. Pictured as what? Scarlet and covered with blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. Again, what's needed to crack the code here of the beast's number and name in chapter 13, you remember, is needed once again in chapter 17. And what's that? Verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom, not mathematical expertise. So in the flexibility of this visionary symbolism, the seven heads stand for seven mountains, and for seven kings. Now, the seven mountains refer to what? Well, most likely, the obvious thing for most people who were alive at the time he wrote this letter, it would refer to Rome, the seven hills of Rome. That would be the geography they were most familiar with. But you see, in prophetic imagery, which is what the book of Revelation is all about, mountains are simply associated with power and the ability to rule things. Babylon's called by God a destroying mountain. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth. I will make you a burnt-out 
mountains. So both mountains and kings here symbolize what? They symbolize the worldwide authority given to the beast to rule every tribe, every people, every tongue, and every nation. So this is where people really get funny. Because this kind of text invites speculation. And the speculation, as best as I can tell, borders on the ridiculous. Of the seven kings, for example, in verse 1, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while longer. Wow, now that gets you all excited, doesn't you? Well, which ones is he referring to? Which one came? Which one hasn't come? And what's yet to come? Do you know? Anybody have any ideas? I don't know. Let's think about that. Well, I was reading the New York Times today. You see, the details of the description sound so specific that it seems to invite us to draw a one-to-one correlation with particular kings or kingdoms. Because after all, the four beasts in Daniel's vision were four kingdoms. But I have to say this, I decline the invitation to do that. Some suggest the seven kings are Roman emperors. Ah, no way. Some suggest that they're kingdoms. But the kingdom interpretation falters where? It falters when you try to identify the seventh kingdom that will follow Rome and we're told remain briefly thereafter to be replaced by the beast. Which kingdom comes after Rome? Obvious question. Barbarian invaders from the north? They were the first ones to come after Rome fell. Would it be Islam expanding from the southeast? Oh, well, maybe. What about centuries later, Nazism and communism? Yeah, that sounds good. I like that. That has a ring to it. You see, this kind of interpretation, this kind of of an approach to the symbolism, symbolism leads everyone to a blind alley. How much historiographic expertise must a simple Bible-believing person have to interpret this passage? Do I need to have a Ph.D. in ancient history to do it? You see, seven, again, simply symbolizes what? Completeness. That's all it ever means. So it shows that the beast's reign apparently holds sway over the whole history of fallen humanity. Yet from the perspective of God's plan to establish the kingdom... Under the scepter of the Lamb, the beast's time is drawing short. Five out of seven already have fallen. So, to be sure, the readers of this letter, John's initial readers, aren't at the very end of history yet, the conflict of the ages. That's clear. So, the one king who has not yet come and must remain a little while shows what? It shows that though the dragon has been decisively defeated by the blood of the Lamb. We know that from Revelation chapter 12. Nevertheless, the church must be prepared to endure suffering, persecution, and hostility. We've already seen the various angles on the last battle of human history, which will be described for us in Revelation 19 again with great specificity. In chapter 11, we're told what? The beast wages war against the two witnesses. That's the church. In Revelation 13, the beast from the sea seeks to destroy those who don't bear his mark. In chapter 16, the kings wage war to destroy the church. Here the beast is pictured coming out of the abyss as the eighth king and kingdom. In other words, at its root, every pagan culture, 
Every pagan world empire is another incarnation of the same satanic spirit. And that will reach its full intensity just before Jesus Christ comes again in history. When the glory of the Lamb and the Lion of Judah bring to nothing those forces that would oppose it. So the camera angles on this last battle vary as you move from Revelation chapter 12 all the way up to Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. But the storyline is the same. It's always the same. Jesus' followers, that's you and that's me, have to be prepared for a period of unparalleled, intense persecution when evil forces who are restrained will be set free and set loose to wreak havoc against the church. But what of the harlot? Verse 16, the beast and the the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. The once arrogant, seductress Babylon, who stole affections that were due only to God, will be killed by her own creation. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. She will be killed by her own lovers. The very ones who are intoxicated from her will kill her and destroy her. The people will destroy the very thing they worship. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish His purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. Ironic, isn't it? If there's one thing in all the world that the rebels don't want to do, it's to fulfill the purposes of God. And here they are, fulfilling the purposes of God. They are helpless. They are completely helpless to keep that sovereign purpose out of their hearts, to protect their minds from the invasion by the Lord God Almighty. And doing what they think they want to do, hating the harlot and ripping her to pieces, They're doing precisely what God wants them to do. And in gathering to wage war against the Messiah, they are merely assembling for their own destruction. Don't you recall the schemes the devil employed to somehow try to destroy the Messiah, Jesus? He thought he was so clever. If he couldn't kill the baby Jesus through Herod, well, he would tempt Jesus in the desert. If that didn't work, well, we'll just kill him. (laughs) The mousetrap was set. We'll just kill him. Little did he know, he was a pawn in God's greater work of salvation. In Acts chapter 2, the man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Why do the nations and the peoples plot and rage in vain? We're told in Acts, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. Seemingly rebellious, creative in their rebellion, they're all the while under God's sovereign control. You see, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection 
doomed Satan and the architecture of the world he would create. The church is to what? Vigilantly disentangle itself from the system the world offers. Because it is, as we know, a banquet for the dead. That's all it is. Because the light has come into the world, but men reject the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They would rather stay in darkness. Or at least light their own torches, which ultimately do them no good. Because we, the people of God, are described as those who love the light. Because the light is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the answer. And that answer will be solemnly declared as completed when the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, return one day. And He will put all of His enemies away. That is the story of human experience. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for the truth that You do control and guide history to Your own ends, to Your own purposes. That You are the sovereign God. And you will be worshipped alone. There are no other gods worthy of worship. They are simply the gods of our imagination. We come to you this day because Jesus has opened our eyes, softened our hearts, given us a new spirit, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Because you have made it very clear, you're looking for worshipers. And we come this day as your worshipers. Because you alone are the hope. As Peter said to our Savior, you only have the words of eternal life. Those are the words we need to hear. Those are the words we need to be reminded of. Those are the words we need to share with others who do not know you. That you have eternal life. Give us confidence in that message as we see the map of history itself unfolding, that it's your story that's being told. And we'll give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.